Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey Matt. Hello everyone. I should probably think of a new intro for myself. Maybe I should go, hey everyone. Hi Matt. It's changing it around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone listening would like to write in and give us a bit of feedback on that, do you prefer, hey Matt, hey everyone, or do you prefer, hey everyone, hey Matt. Or a completely novel idea. Yeah. We should move on. Let us know. So before we get into it, um, but also a fundamental part of it, let's just acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting or recording from, uh, and that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here in the northern parts of Melbourne, and we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And of course, should we be privileged enough to have anyone, any elders joining us either here in Australia or, or indeed among our overseas listeners. So we will be welcoming Adriano Di Prato or Adriano Di Prato. I feel like when he calls you Matteo, he's kind of telling you he doesn't, he kind of just likes Adriano. Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out. I think it's a... It's a questioning episode we've got. There's a lot of questions. I think that (laughs) it was a um, a a solidarity rather than a don't call me that. But um, I like that. You've taken it on that level and um, maybe we'll ask him one day. Well, I'm, he might be one of the many people who writes in mm. in response to our various questions. Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll be hearing from Adriano later on and we'll give him his proper introduction then. But before we do, Toby, been reading anything interesting of late? Currently reading a book called Upstream by a guy called Dan Heath and it wasn't meant to be something I was trying to read for my work, but it's actually got an awful lot to do with a lot of work that I do around resilience and preparedness. And and the reason the book is called Upstream, well, there are a couple of reasons, but um, one is, I mean, fundamentally it's about how do we take action uh, to prevent bad things happening. And the reason, part of the reason for that sort of framing around Upstream is, is it opens with a story that two people are by a river and a young child is suddenly washed down uh, and one of them leaps into the river uh, and rescues the child. And then another child uh, is seen in the river and the same person jumps into the river and rescues the child and this keeps on going. And at some point the other adult, uh, other person, starts walking off and the person who's been doing all the saving looks at him and says, ''Where are you going? I'm going to save these children.'' So I'm going to go upriver and find out, go upstream, find out who's chucking all these kids in. Uh, and anyway, so that's the sort of the basic concept is how do we uh, try to think ahead to, uh, uh, and un- understand, you know, the root cause of problems uh, to, to take action today. And I think that ties quite nicely with some of the conversation we'll ha- we have with Adriana uh, or certainly uh, some of the mission of A School for Tomorrow that Adriana helps to run. How about yourself? Yeah, so it links really well with yours. Um, Before I talk about the book that I'm reading, I'd I'd like to press you with a question about that idea. Surely the idea of prevention or, or, you know, thinking forward rather than being a reactionary person is just like common sense. But it seems like more and more in society there seem to be gaps of forward thinking and forward planning and we see it with our politics, we see it with 
potentially business our own lives. Like we're just flying by the seat of our pants and hoping things are good. You know, it's almost like we're someone's written a book and we're just living it out rather than being agents of our own destiny. Why do you think that is? So I don't think it's in a, a kind of linear picture as it were. So actually we're much better at planning ahead, being prevention oriented as, as a human species uh, than we were able to uh, in the past, arguably. And so for many, many people in the world on a day-to-day basis, they actually experience fewer catastrophes uh, and general mishaps than they would have done in previous generations. The flip side to that is that when things go wrong, they go wrong more systemically uh, and also the human tolerance of things going wrong is less. I think we still haven't seen how it fully plays out, but probably if you compare the COVID-19 pandemic with previous pandemics and certainly the influenza pandemic following the World War One, our ability to plan ahead and to re- react uh, is so much more advanced. But we, we understand the problems better. But understanding the problems better doesn't necessarily help us as a collective either feel better about it or indeed always make better decisions. But I think... I don't have necessarily empirical evidence of this, but I think as a as a general rule, humanity plans ahead more than in the past and, and acts on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm so to go to the book I'm reading. It's called Our Malady by Timothy Snyder, who is uh, an author and historian and just a fantastic um, human being from. Uh, what I've read of him and uh, heard him. Um, that he wrote about himself. He writes about himself. No, I've listened to many podcasts, yeah. many talks. Um, I, the actual, I read a book called On Tyranny a mm. few years ago, which was basically outlining tyranny in the 20th century and how he sees parallels with the American system and how Donald Trump was being a president. And he's seeing denigrating institutions, universities, the media, all of that as mm-hmm. the first steps. Mm. So it happened in 1920s Germany. It, you know, it happened in um, in Soviet the Soviet Union. I mean, they they didn't really have a democracy previously that was long-standing. The Russian provisional government of 1917 wasn't there for long or working very well. But when there's signs of hope, they dismantle and destroy those liberal institutions or what's being attempted in democracy to 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 get the masses to to support them, be on their sides, and then um, you know <laughs> take over and. He sees many of those signs. Now, this is really controversial um, to say that in this world and I have chats with lots of people like, is it really that bad? Is he really that bad? Is it the US that bad? But Timothy Snyder is an expert on tyranny throughout the world as well as had first-hand experience in the healthcare system where he found that the American healthcare system was reactionary and profit-driven, at least his experience, rather than one of prevention and of searching for what could be inquiring to what could possibly be wrong. Um, they waited to the last possible moment where he was really ill and on his deathbed before acting and then did it well because they've got incredible technology and surgeons mm. and people involved. But but the system 
was at fault, not the people within the system, that the system is overburdened and it comes to a lack of funding and a lack of empathy almost uh, because th- there's just that gap, you know, you're a patient on a screen with a name and, and we react to you on the needs if it suits us at the time. And I'm reflecting constantly on those two things that health should be a human right and it is the core of freedom. You know, if you're not healthy, you're unable freedom to be free. Freedom to be healthy, yeah. Yeah, like to, to live your life, not to just exist but to live well, to, to just be free, I think health is the first step to that and time to enjoy your health is also and I think that's being eroded in our society in some ways um, and maybe that's a glass half empty view that you know people used to work 16 hours in factories you know with no break and then people still do in some parts of the world but what I'm getting at is hmm, what are you getting at man? this upstream idea <laughs> of thinking about the future what life do we want yeah. you know and I think it's so important to um, to just really to start thinking about what tomorrow might look like, you know, as adults but also for the next generation. Before we move there, I, I think one of the things, a couple of things from what you've just said that Dan Heath talks about in Upstream. So one is, and I'm really, when you were talking about Timothy Snyder's experience in the hospital following appendicitis uh, and, and, and the ensuing complications, Dan Heath has this nice phrase. In fact, he's quoting somebody else. You have to bear in mind every system is perfectly designed to deliver the results it delivers. Which sounds like a bit of a tautology, but it kind of, it does mean that even if we've got a completely imperfect system, what it produces is a consequence of that imperfect system uh, and so on. And so when you were talking about Snyder's experience of healthcare and, and what was wrong with the US healthcare, it is a consequence of the system. And then the other thing uh, he talks about in being very critical of the US uh, healthcare system, and I think it's fair to say while the US health system has its own peculiarities and is much more extreme, kind of victim of its design and at best success than other places, but essentially all modern medical systems are that they are inherently reactive. And so even in systems where, and like Australia, the US, uh, Japan, where people actually have very high life expectancies because we can become very good at stopping people from dying mm. rather than necessarily being really good at stopping them getting sick and indeed potentially letting them die. Yeah, and, and, and very quickly uh, on that, um, yeah, I guess my reflection reading a book about the US mm-hmm. and comparisons to Europe and, and what's possible and he talks, you know, often about even the, the hospital system with or well, the maternal health system, you know, the idea that women get so much time off, mothers, birth mothers mm. and partners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a, a, a solidarity to connect that we're going to support through our taxation, through our, our the things that we've built, the systems that we've built, we're going to support people to have those moments with, you know, whether it's family, whether it's recovery, whether it's, you know, a holiday, whatever we need because we're going to be better off for it long term and as a society. But we've got, I find, we're straddling between that really individualist and in at times successful the US model versus that European solidarity model that, you know, Australia has a pathway that we sort of 
have to choose and, and I feel like we're, we're neither here nor there. We're not doing the safety net thing as well as we could be and I think a lot of things have happened during COVID to shine a light on our health system and its, its failures but also we can still get great quality healthcare and not pay really anything for it directly, um, you know, when, when the time comes. So what do we do? going forward I think it's uh, something I would like to do an episode on going forward and, and ponder you know what there's a lot of talk on the health system and just on systems in general forward thinking and and looking at what we can do to better prepare ourselves for a better life and and to thrive rather than just survive and um, on that note Adriano does talk about his journey in doing that within education mm-hmm. the educational system so Adriano De Prado is one of Australia's prominent educational thought leaders and an authority on curriculum learning design and change management, who actively promotes agency, self-determined learning, growth mindset and holistic wellness of all students. And I think the beyond Adriano, uh, just as a, as a person, but the very concept of a school uh, is absolutely about preparing students and the systems on which they repl- rely, so i.e. the sort of the educators uh, and the institutions and helping them uh, to create environments that are open to change and, you know, fundamentally in the context that we're talking about with this upstream thinking and preparedness mindset is to be ready for tomorrow. So really building the educators and the educational system, we need to be ready for tomorrow. Absolutely. And, and um, Adriana has a podcast called Game Changers, which is um, doing extremely well. Um, it's definitely worth a listen. And, yeah, have a listen to that. Um, but, you know... Stick with us now as we discuss uh, education and life with Adriano De Prado. Adriano, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Well, thank you very much, Matthew and Toby. It's wonderful to be with you both. It's thank our you. pleasure. Adriano, can you get us started with a little bit about you? What's... Um, What's Adriano up to at the moment and what are some of the things that led you to the point you are probably in a professional sense to start with? Well, from a purely functionary point of view, I'm found one of the founding partners of a, a new kind of educational startup called A School for Tomorrow and uh, we are a, a global network supporting students, teachers, school leaders uh, and um, school teams to basically thrive in this new world environment. And in, in addition to that, I am the co-host of uh, one of Australia's leading educational podcasts called Game Changers, which I'm exceptionally proud of. Uh, Prior to my life in the edupreneur space, which is still very new to me, uh, having only been here now in my third year, uh, and I'm learning all the time, all the time, about so much about um, my my capacity, but also about... uh, the value of enterprise and transferable skills, which I've obviously been advocating for in education for a a lot longer than I've been in this space for. So prior to this, I I had a a life in schools and they were predominantly in metropolitan Melbourne uh, Catholic independent schools uh, where I had the privilege of being a deputy head at uh, an independent boys' school in Berlin and uh, then I was also deputy head at a co-educational school in Braybrook. And then prior to that, a whole series of different individual schools, all um, Catholic, uh, all secondary, and I've had opportunities to 
to lead different elements of those schools, whether it's in a visual arts capacity, whether it's timetabling, whether it's through um, the welfare side of things in schools or teaching and learning. So it's a, it's a pretty broad opportunity that I've had within education primarily, and that's been um, most of my professional life. Now I want to swing to, we're going to get back to all things professional life soon, Adriano, but sure. we want to swing to your upbringing and, and personal life. What brought you to education? What were the sort of foundations for you that, that led you down that path? I recently actually did an interview for Australian Teacher Magazine where they asked me a very similar question. Um, yours is slightly nuanced around how did I then ultimately get into education I'll talk a little bit about why I think education chose me and I didn't choose it in a moment. But my upbringing is predominantly in Melbourne's western suburbs and uh, I am a first-generation Australian. I'm a, I'm a son of an Italian immigrant. That was my father. And my mother is uh, has an Austrian heritage. So two very uh, strong Catholic nations. So I didn't have a choice, right? I was uh, born into a Catholic household and my first introduction to the church was via uh, a christening at a baptism and, uh, and, and the initiation begins. So from a faith context, that's uh, a bit of the grounding and, and uh, an understanding to the listeners a, a little bit about parts of my formation. What I was really fortunate about was that I had two parents whose work ethic example is not that dissimilar to most migrant stories, right? come to Australia post-Second World War at two different ages. My mother is older than my father. My father is now deceased. He passed in 2019. Uh, my father came out here when he was 14 alone uh, on a boat uh, and then he met up with his mother and uh, his elder sister here uh, and he, I think, worked about three or four jobs, <laughs> you know, um, at that age uh, and, and developed a capacity to earn an income, to pay off his debt to the government and then to be able to bring out his younger sister. My mother came out to Australia a, a little bit after my father came out to Australia and uh, also looking for new opportunities, as most migrants at that time did. And like all waves of migration to this wonderful country, continue to, to be on this great adventure, you know, uh, of it. But what I was able to witness throughout my entire life was two individuals that worked tirelessly uh, to provide for their children and for each other. And they did it with humour, fun, lots of joy. I have such fond memories of constant travelling with them interstate on camping trips with cousins and friends and things like that. And so joy was, was a constant thread. And so was that work ethic I mentioned to you a moment ago, which I feel is an important part of my own kind of hardwiring, so to speak, yeah, and, and how I go about everything that I do. And so when it came to the pointy end of secondary school for me to make some decisions about what I'm going to study, because, you know, as a child of a migrant, you're going to university whether you like it or not, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and off I went to Monash University to undertake a design degree. And that was always my first passion. Art and design has always been and continues to be a, a great love of mine and a real interest. And um, the course was meant to be for four years. It uh, had a new dean come in and offer us the opportunity to complete it within three years if you did some summer units and so on. So I took that option, 
But then I thought I always made this commitment that I'd do four years. So then I went and did a dip ed at the University of Melbourne. And uh, there was a particular school that I did uh, teaching rounds at for three, four weeks in North Keeler. And um, after I'd finished my degree, I entered into the world of design and advertising only to receive a call with an offer to come and be uh, a teacher. And I thought, well, this is just going to be Adriano being curious, right? This is just him going into the world and uh, trying another profession, but it's not going to be my my bag. I'm just going to do it because I'm curious and, and, and here I am. I'm going to return to the world of design. Well, 28 years later, I haven't left. <laughs> and this is why I feel that education chose me and it continues to... Um, draw me back to want to support remarkable young people. Mm -hmm. Are there elements of what you're doing with a school for tomorrow that maybe give you from the outside, just looking at the website and so forth, a little bit more freedom around to maybe indulge that more artistic design driven side of you? Is that an assumption too far? No, it's not an assumption at all, Toby. uh, Well, I can say that everything you will witness from a visual context when it comes to a school for tomorrow is uh, has an influence of mine on it. Uh, we have a great creative associate as well, Oliver, Oliver Cummins, who's got some great skill in that space. Yes, it does allow that opportunity. I suppose what it does, Toby, is it allows the opportunity for me to actively promote the value of, say, a design thinking methodology And then to be able to use that in a way in which to transform not only what happens at a classroom level, but even at a strategic planning level within a school context. It's amazing when when an executive team of a school enters into the first stage of design thinking, which is the empathy stage, where they are fundamentally developing an understanding of their community. It's an audit but it's a deep listening. It's a listening, it's an observation, and it's a collection of data. But that empathy is so fundamental to them understanding what's sacred about their community. What are, what are the blind spots? What are their inherent strengths? And where is their opportunity for real growth? And that, that introspection really helps because empathy places you in the, in the shoes of the other. And then, of course, along that continuum of design thinking, we move to the to the defining stage where we really analyse that that listening, that observation, and that data, and we synthesise it into some type of me- making of meaning. And then we move to iteration and prototyping, and so on. So, at a strategic level, it works exceptionally well. At a classroom level, I've only ever witnessed it transform young women and young men in realising their possibility. It's got structure. There are, there are lots of um, uh, scaffolding around each of the stages, but they are fundamentally developing a capacity and an intrinsic motivation for a love of learning and that the process of learning is paramount mm-hmm. and in some, in some ways even more significant than the final product or the outcome. But it allows uh, a young person to enter into the space of deep curiosity if they enter into a space that's deeply person-centred and solution-focused, and it allows them to tap into their natural consciousness about what they feel is wrong in this world um, and that they would like to make a contribution in shifting, and it gives them the, the kind of tools to be able to navigate that in a really safe and controlled way where they can take the necessary risks to fail forward uh, and 
and discover so much about their capacity. So that's what I've been able to really love, Toby, about the work that we're doing with the School for Tomorrow on a school level mm-hmm. and do that. Now, that's not to say that we, we also don't actively promote the value of explicit instruction, for instance. Of course it has value. How do I ignore something that is that has got great credibility around it in, in building young people's mastery of knowledge and skills? But um, your question was around the art and design side of things, so it enables that. The other thing I'll share with you also is we we facilitate a number of different types of leadership programs that we do with executive teams of schools. And often I use a, a program that I've developed called a pedagogy of encounter that allows people to step into real divergent thinking. Hmm. So they, they start off with convergent thinking and then they move into divergent thinking. And I use a lot of art uh, to help um, kind of, provoke them into thinking a particular way uh, or not not thinking in a particular way, in allowing them to broaden their perspective so they're not thinking in one particular way. Yep. I just want to say, Adriana, you speak it to my heart here. I'm... I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for over 10 years now. I started, well, I went to Catholic school myself, primary and secondary, boys' school in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, and then taught at a Catholic primary school before moving to the public sector, and I've been at two pretty large, one of the biggest in Melbourne, um, Peter 12 schools, and then now a secondary college um, in the northeast. And, yeah, it's been a, a journey um, learning about this. But what I love, and I've done some work with the tech schools in the area um, that work with design thinking and trying to bring that across, especially in my field, the humanities. So I'm a humanities domain leader and and work closely trying to build this inquiry model, this design think model to try to empathise and, and tune in and help students find a love of learning before they then get stuck into it or else they're just sort of compliant people sitting in a room hoping someone gives me something if worth you're learning. lucky if you're lucky yeah. at the good school <laughs> and yeah. um and what you're yeah what you're describing is just something I, I would really love to explore and i just wanted to to start on that but when did you feel as an educator that the status quo wasn't working and and we need to start innovating and thinking differently about education i'm not really sure matthew if there was just one moment. When I started in education, I was very fortunate at that school in North Keelor to be in a visual arts department with some of the smartest educators I've ever encountered in my life, or humans, period. Not only did they have a great acumen and skill around their knowledge of their learning area, but they understood the value of compassion and why that is such an important element of any kind of teacher's toolkit, any leader's toolkit. And I learned very quickly through their example that diversity was and is an inherent strength and that we should run towards it, not away from it. So I remember that very fondly sticking with me. I then had experiences in other schools that perhaps weren't, as affirming, in fact, I would say they were downright disappointing and I I left those experiences very jaded about this cannot be the way in which we support young people. There was this gut response, you know, that it just didn't sit comfortably with me, the way young people were being spoken to, the way they were being treated and they were never included in any conversation It was, you know, sit and get, drill and kill type of, you know, um, environment. And 
then I, I made a decision in my mind that I was no longer going to return to education, that I was going to definitely return to a design advertising marketing world. But before I did that, I was offered a two-week replacement at, at um, Carolyn Chisholm Catholic College in Braybrook. And I was there to replace someone who had been quite ill. That replacement went from two weeks to a term to 10 years. <laughs> right? And, and um, when I was there in my first year and I was in a particular year level, so this won't give away the person, so I was in a particular year level and I just couldn't understand how the head of that year level continued to treat young people the way they did. Anytime there was a conversation about a person, a young person, it was a deficit conversation. It was never a conversation about anything that was slightly redeeming. And in those early years, it was hard yards, right? We, we had young people that were uh, trafficking in illicit substances. We had young people that would bring weapons to the school. There was a gang culture that would be brought outside. And, and very quickly, through the powerful leadership of the school and, and its intent to transform lives, we broke the back of that and transformed it. But when you kept going down a deficit narrative, we were just perpetuating the way these young people felt. So those things that they were participating in outside were about survival. They were about developing community. Whether As wrong as it was, they were consumed by that. So I couldn't understand how some of the adults in the environment, some, behaved in a way that just perpetuated, not that they endorsed those behaviours, so I don't want this misinterpreted, yeah, but, but you know, perpetuated this oppression that these young people were, were feeling. But the leadership did. The leadership was outstanding in that school and recognised it very quickly over how can we build bridges, how can we build a dialogue, you know, what can we do differently? And so very quickly I saw a model of hope and uh, a model that understood the a leadership that understood inherently that its, 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 its core business is not just about measuring productivity, but how do we create learning communities of significance that are, that are about transformation? And so that was probably, a, a, you know, a second re revelation in, in my career. Then the next revelation was that I never aspired to leadership. I've never been that type of ambitious person. I've only ever been ambitious about being better than I was yesterday. And uh, I realised that when I was successful in winning a position of responsibility, that I was an agent of the principal's office and it wasn't just about me, that I was a steward of something bigger than me and that, that I had then different responsibility. My responsibility went from the, the local context of the, of the young people in my classroom, which always remained till my final year in the school, but also to this broader context of, of, of shaping a narrative that has to be coming from the constructs of love, compassion and hope and forgiveness and those type of things. And how do we do that? And I remember um, uh, the principal coming to me and saying, I want you to be the year 10 coordinator next year and I want you to start thinking about how we're going to cater for the 15 most disengaged young people in the year level. So I started then the following year as a year 10 coordinator and I started investigating what's possible for these 15 disadvantaged students. And I discovered very quickly, this is in 2003 perhaps, probably even earlier than that, I discovered very quickly that it wasn't that the 15 young people had an issue. It was what we were delivering for them was the problem. 
And I discovered that really quickly, that the model that we were working within had had a clear restriction associated to it because it catered for a particular type and that those 15 students, although they were enrolled and although their fees were being, parents' fees were being collected, well, they were seen as difficult because they didn't fit into that model. So we had to come up with some alternatives. And can I tell you, um, VCAL didn't exist then. Vet studies was just, just emerging. And I was fortunate enough to have a relationship with uh, Professor Richard Teese at the University of Melbourne and read one of his reports earlier on around the value of applied learning and, and particular pathways. And so we developed a program at year 10 where uh, a student could do the mainstream year 10, which was core and electives, pretty, pretty standard and conventional. Still 26 years later, that still exists in schools. Uh, then there was the model of them doing that with an acceleration of a VC option. That model still exists in schools. But we then decided we need to partner with the local TAFE to develop some type of mm, trade pathway for these students. And then we worked extensively with individual needs or in some school special needs departments to better understand neurodivergent needs. And it was that experience when I realised every young person in our schools is home to a life and we have a responsibility, sorry, we have a responsibility to make sure that if we are serious about equity and excellence, that we've got to cater for that for every young person in our school and that should be our quest. Again, it's less about productivity, it's more about significance and when we provide, provided then and still do provide young people with the opportunity for them to step into their own possibility, well, it's transformational. Can I ask you a couple of questions? And thank you for that, Adriana. One question is, given that you are so clearly committed uh, and, and, and feel what appears to be very deeply the importance of compassion the education, the potential within each individual. What is it that led to stepping out of direct teaching and being a vice principal to what you're doing now through a school for tomorrow? The reality was that in 2019, I was probably pulling 80 hours a week. Yeah. And uh, by the way, that wasn't an expectation from anyone other than <laughs> the one that I placed on myself. And... Uh, my father passed away in the middle of that year and, Toby, I, I took no time to grieve and I took no time to recognise that I was broken. You know, this this hardwired work ethic in me is that you just keep going, right? You, you persevere and I've done that for 26-plus years without ever stopping and pausing and affirming myself about what I've been able to achieve uh, but also recognising the gifts that I've been able to bring to these communities in partnership with so many amazing individuals, yeah. I always recognise theirs, but never mine. And I feel that what happened was I increasingly became agitated with everything and I felt that I was behaving in a way that wasn't consistent with who I was in terms of uh, being short and abrupt with people, you know, with students as well. And I, I wasn't recognising the individual was in pain and that I actually needed um, some time out. So I uh, went and saw my GP and um, he recognised very quickly that I am struggling with a form of depression 
Now, that might be the post-trauma of finding my father gasping for air and trying to resuscitate his life and not taking the time to um, heal that, that trauma. So I made the decision, rightly or wrongly, to resign because it was the first time in my life that I made the decision uh, that I needed to place my well-being mm-hmm. and my care first because I hadn't I hadn't done that up to that point. It was everyone else's, uh, the young people in my care, the, the adults that I worked alongside of, my family and so on. And so I realised I was pretty fallible um, and that was a tough thing to come to a realisation for because I felt that I needed to be all those other things for other people, but I'd forgotten um, to attend to me in that. So I needed to make that change, Toby, mm-hmm. and I did. And uh, as difficult as it was, because I I, I loved my time at, at that school, uh, I've got such fond memories of of the staff and the students and uh, and the, and the wonderful parents. But I needed the break, and the transition though was not something that I really aspired towards. COVID hit. And that derailed my plans to lie on a beach in Sicily for a couple of months and do nothing except rotate like a chicken on a rotisserie on that sand, right? <laughs> Drinking an apparel spritz and having some uh, amazing um, pasta while I was there. And maybe You've obviously thought it through. <laughs> I, I, don't worry. I was online thinking, what, where am I going to book first? But um, so then, so then I got this a phone call from Dr. Phil Cummins, and uh, he, he asked the question about whether or not. We want to have a conversation about putting together a podcast. I felt, well, I've got a lot still to say about education and, mm-hmm. and, and contribute. And so we did. And then born from that and its success in a very short period of time was real interest from people in us almost becoming the game changers. And that was that's never been our intention. Our intention has always been to hero the guests, and it still is. But as a byproduct, that's what happened. And so people were coming to Phil and I about solutions to this issue about doing teaching remotely. And so um, we started a business called A School for Tomorrow. And it's been flourishing ever since. You know, we, we are, we're, we're in so many countries now. Um, we have clients in South Africa, New Zealand, uh, Canada, uh, the United States of America. We've got clients in England as well and other parts of Europe and, of course, in Australia. And so we've got a substantial amount of students schools that we support uh, for everything from simple strategic development, Mm -hmm. you know, all the way through to what happens in that classroom, everything through to student voice, entrepreneurship, building staff capacity around uh, the value of explicit teaching as well as design thinking or project-based learning. We don't believe it's an either-or conversation. We believe it's an and-and-and conversation and better and really understanding what is the local context and what are their inherent needs. So it's just been a natural evolution and I'm I'm absolutely loving uh, that each day is a new surprise. And do you think that mindful that it's, you know, a a relatively young business, but nonetheless, can you imagine that your impact uh, and and the the gift that you ultimately give to young people might actually come or be greater from being semi-outside of the system rather than profoundly in it? That is um, a great question, Toby, and it is a question that I'm still wrestling with. Do you miss the teaching? Yeah, so I'll answer this in two ways. There is no doubt that having access to a broader range of schools and systems, the impact is larger. 
But to what degree is it impacting at a micro level is questionable. Although we're very good at what we do, of course, and uh, and um, we would like to believe that the, the impact is really, really positive in, in moving schools from a mindset of transactional mm-hmm. way in running it to a transformational one, moving from that productivity measurement to one about significance. Do I miss it? I said in that interview in the teacher, uh, Australian Teacher Magazine is that I... I miss those moments when you're in a classroom and you're having a conversation with a young woman or a young man and uh, the penny drops, mm-hmm. you know, where they, it's not about them just finally getting it in terms of the knowledge or skill mastery, but where they come to a realisation that they have a capacity that they never anticipated. Yeah. It goes beyond the word potential. It goes to their inherent possibility that's limitless. Mm-hmm. And when that moment happens, your job is done. Because you know from that day on, that young person, although they will still need someone on their sidelines on the moments of when they do have crisis uh, or the moments of doubt, because that'll still continue, they're, they're human and they're fallible like we all are, but there's a different resourcefulness about them now. You know, they've discovered their why or they're more in tune with what their inherent their purpose is in that moment. It might change over time, but it's definitely now becoming an intrinsic motivation to be better than they were yesterday as opposed to an extrinsic one, which might have been just about a score or a grade or an accolade or an award. So I miss those moments because they're, you know, they're the things that are life-giving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Adriana, I want to go back to you, you as a person. And when you talked about that there's a life behind the student, you you were emotional and you talked also about that potential for trauma in finding your father and the journey you've had to go on since then. Um, And I'm sure it's ever-present to to constantly, you know, stay in right relationship with yourself, you know, what your values are, who you are and what you're doing in the world need to to align – and I'm just wondering what makes you, I guess, emotional about that idea of a life behind a student because I'm in education and we see that, but not every teacher I come across feels that way. Not every leader in schools feel that way. Why is it that you have that special feeling and that empathy and compassion for those you know, young adults that are going to be the, the leaders of tomorrow? Why are they so important as a person rather than just a, a product to you? It's a really fascinating question. I feel that part of the answer to that, Matthew, is the impact that my faith has had on my formation and that I, I'm someone who deeply aspires to what a gospel calls us to be and that's fundamentally love, compassion and forgiveness. I don't think it's more complicated than that. I mean, that's complex, by the way, but I don't think it has to be more complicated than that. That's separate to the institutionalised church, right, because I could say a lot about about that, but I won't because I still want to work with the Catholics. (laughs) Um, but, uh, But I feel that's an important part of my formation. Secondly, this country adopted my parents and gave them an opportunity 
that they worked for. Don't worry about that. They earned it and they and they positioned themselves like all the remarkable migrant stories in the formation of our great cities in, in Australian towns and, and regional areas and industries. But this this country uh, adopted them and, and gave them an opportunity. And I, and I feel the combination of both the aspiration of what this country aspires to and the one of the gospel's faith of love, compassion and forgiveness are things that are, are part of my DNA. And when I enter into a space where predominantly, with one exception, predominantly all the schools I worked at were in Melbourne's western suburbs. So you know automatically that you're going to encounter particular personal circumstances of disadvantage. We were never. I was blessed, you know, working-class parents, but they they were middle-class in many ways and provided all the time. You know, we never went without. They are an amazing example of that. And they always aspired to be better than they were yesterday too. But... When I became then a teacher in these schools and I, I witnessed new waves of migration and I would drive the streets to try and find a kid who's run away from home, we, we would go out and look for a, a young person because he'd been or she had been violently bashed for the eighth time in a row from his father. This level of injustice is not consistent with the aspiration of this country and it's not consistent with what a gospel calls us to be. And I feel then that injustice burned inside of me you know, deeply burned inside of me when I witnessed that and I thought, how can we do this to the most innocent people on our planet? And what is it that we should then be doing to ensure that this doesn't occur anymore, mitigate it as much as we can and ensure that every young person has an opportunity to thrive? So I always come then back to the fact that I'm, I'm a hope-filled person you know, um, and I need to be. And so in the brokenness of everything, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of goodness, there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great things. And and I rather focus on the aspiration of those individuals and less around the deficit of, of elements of life. That's really rich and, and sort of fundamentally moving. And thank you for that, Adriana. I had wondered when I was looking at uh, the website School for Tomorrow, uh, I'm wondering in a, a, about the... Christian orientation. I know, I'm not saying that I've interpreted that the school for tomorrow is inherently Christian, although you might guide me otherwise. But that's not one of one of the reasons I'm Matt's co-host is I interviewed Matt as as the host, and Matt was his own guest when he hit his fiftieth episode. And I, one of the questions I asked Matt was, well, you know, what's really stood out for you? What are some of the surprises? And he said, uh, over the other forty nine episodes, I hadn't realize that as I was in, in interrogating this pursuit of aligning virtues uh, with action, which was a big driver for the podcast, how many people would have some kind of spiritual basis to this? And, you know, whether or not they were actively Christian or actively religious, so often it was, well, I had a very religious upbringing and so forth. And, and so I'm just wondering, and it's a very long question, my apologies, but in terms of grounding the thinking, and obviously compassion is clear. You have to be religious to be compassionate, but there's a no. there's that Christian well, element. And how does so how let's does that, face it, how, Catholicism doesn't have any lock on values. Let's face it. <laughs> and, um, so how does it? To what extent does it? How does it influence? How when you're thinking of a school for tomorrow? Let me rephrase this. Yeah. In a world which is in some ways more questioning of religion and traditional 
institutions. Mm -hmm. When you're preparing these people for tomorrow, what is the role of religion um, and how does it influence the broader thinking of what you all do? Well, in the context of a school for tomorrow, we work with sectors in the public domain as well as in independent and in, in Catholic. So we have a preparedness to work within the values sets and the value proposition of each of those different sectors, and they all have value. Right? One doesn't have superiority over values over the other. In fact, uh, you know, it's a real privilege to walk into a public school here in Australia to see the dedication of educators who continually to go out of their way to foster character, to foster compassion, to foster curiosity, to foster connection and community. Those things are not exclusive to faith-based schools or faith-based systems or my faith. They just happen to be things that are part of my formation so that when I do go into a public school or a faith-based school, I can recognise an authentic quest to be person-centred or one that's just a great marketing tool, whether it's public or not. Yeah. We have a responsibility in these schools for us to continue to honour what I said before, and that is every young person in our care is home to a life. We need to honour this truth and we need to embrace its privilege and its price of giving the, the, the each young person's life this kind of breath of abundant living. And um, m my faith grounds me in my truth and my inner north and what I aspire to be as a person. I make mistakes and uh, I've made many and... I need to I reflect upon those and think about how, how I can uh, ensure that that doesn't happen again. But that doesn't necessarily influence then how I work with schools or how we work with schools at a school for tomorrow apart from having a bit of a, a compass or a radar about the value of values, <laughs> period. The interesting other thing too is that so much of our system in Australia, for instance, or in Western democracies is built on Christian Judeo principles, right, whether whether you're of a faith or not. But so much of our laws and our systems mm -hmm. and our democracies and are built around these kind of constructs. So it, it is a little bit of a thread that's it's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we definitely don't hold, we don't, we don't hold the monopoly on virtue, that's for sure. Yeah. It's funny, just a quick story, um, but it reminded me so when you were talking then of when I was in Iran a number of years ago now, uh -huh. yep. and I chat with people and I, I never told anything that wasn't true, but just I drew out different elements of who I was uh, different in different conversations just to test. So I told people I was Christian, I told people I was mm -hmm. Jewish, I told people that um, I was American, I told people that I was British, um, which all of which are a part of who I am. And the only time, and everyone, again, bearing in mind this, you know, Iran and hates the US and people were, loved that I was maybe American or I, that I was American, um, loved that I was from the UK. They were just so pleased to have someone else there. The only time I got a bad reception was when I tried the one, which was also kind of true, which is I'm, a th I'm an atheist because they just <laughs> didn't know where I stood then. It was like, yeah. what, what do you believe in? Yeah, that, yeah. And so everything else was fine because they could place me. And then that one was very, where are your values? What, what do you stand for? It's interesting. It's really interesting that you would have that response. And I keep coming back, you know, I made a statement earlier on uh, where I said that, you know, diversity is our strength, right? If we are serious 
about creating learning communities that are truly inclusive, the question we have to ask ourselves, and it's a question that one of our guests on Game Changers, an American uh, or a Danish educator who's based in America, uh, Pernell Rip said, whose voices are missing? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a powerful question. And I think the, the other part of the, that question is, and what impact does it have on our view of the world? And so the coloured person, the member of the LGBT plus community, the elderly, someone from Asia, an atheist, a Catholic and a Jew and a a Muslim and a Hindu should all be around the table, right? Because we we don't know what we don't know and unless we are prepared to ask that hard question about whose voice is missing, we are simply shifting the deck chairs on the status quo and simply perpetuating a legacy piece that has maybe favoured a particular subset of community, of society. And until we're open to the possibility of, of, of our hearts and minds and listening to the perspective of the other, in, in, a, real, in a real conscious dialogue, mm-hmm. we're not going to break free of any binary thinking, particularly when it comes to education. Thanks, Adriano. I've got a big, long rant in me, but we don't have time for it. <laughs> and it's <Wait>. not... <laughs> Um, and we don't. don't. Don't even try to get it out of me because <laughs> I go for a while. Um, but, and I, I love everything you've said, but it's about the, it's based on the question I'm about to ask you. Mm-hmm. And I think you can put it a little bit more succinctly than I would in my rambling ways. Education, whether you're in it or you're not, it feels a little bit broken right now, the mm-hmm. system, and it's so integral to our ongoing success as a nation, as a world, and, and, and for individuals as well. Do you think you could outline briefly the overarching problem or some of the problems oh. and then go into some potential solutions um, where that hope and optimism out of the wreckage can come from? Matt, you've asked me this question with... Uh with only a short bit of time remaining, you know this. That's a whole. That's a whole uh, series in itself. In fact, go listen to Jeff Game Changes, <laughs> and you'll hear us having this conversation every single series. I'm going to answer it this way because uh, I really like your listeners to go out and buy our book that's coming out in October called Game Changes, leading today's learning for tomorrow as well. Small little plug there. Um, we'll but put it up front I'll, on the on the show. I'll, I'll, I want. I just want. I'll answer it this way. My hope is that. I'm going to talk about Australia, okay? I'm not going to, uh, for now, because uh, we've got to start locally. My hope is that Australians, as Australians, we break free, free of binary thinking, period, and adversarial approaches to so many issues that we're currently facing. My hope is that our leaders start to look for a common good rather than focusing on difference. My hope for our country is that we become much more intellectually curious and collaborative. You shouldn't be in, a, in the educational sector if you don't have hope. And my hope is to instill in each of the young people we educate a great optimism and a sense of possibility to learn, to live, to lead and to work for their future. A future that many can't necessarily see, but so much of it's already here and we're already late. And the faster we come to a realisation that schooling and education is less about me as the adult and more about 
what that young person is going to need to thrive in their world. When we come to that realisation, transformation will occur. I'm not calling for revolution, by the way. I feel that evolution is a, is a way in which to bring people along. But we can no longer deny that so much of our system is broken and we need to continue to operate from a position of deep hope where, where every person in our community feels included, where they feel valued, where they feel trusted, and that we begin to work together uh, with, with leaders and each other and where the notion of permission supports each person to rise um, and for them to kind of be stretched uh, in, in letting go of this notion of simply control and compliance and being open to the possibility of the inherent value of each person in our community. Matt and I had a conversation a few episodes back about getting rid of manifestos, but if that weren't a manifesto, I'd sign up to it. Um, <laughs> you know, look, uh, Matt, there'll be people listening to this that will think that was just a bit of word salad, and I can accept that. But we've got to start with, with, with a shared vision and a shared vocabulary. We need a new grammar in schools and a new language. That's the vocabulary part, right? And then, then when we come together, we can start looking at uh, the roadmap forward and what our aspiration is. That's got to then become the central nervous system of, of whatever schooling is going to be. But part of these solutions has to be for us to stop being so insular within schools and look beyond our boundaries. And we've got to start doing a curriculum that ensures that young people can feel that they're part of the world and not separate from it, mm -hmm. right? You know, and that's often what can happen. If we, if we are prepared as part of a practice and a solution to all of this, because you asked me that a moment ago about solutions, if we are prepared to develop a learning ecosystem, and that's an intentional bit of language I'm using, that ecosystem, because we have a planet in crisis and we've got to stop living as we're bloody separate from it. If we develop a learning ecosystem that leverages the best of the on-campus experience of the character apprenticeship between the teacher and the student and the peer exchange that goes on between the young people and so on, with the advancements in technology with an in-context experience as well as an in-country experience, I feel then we're going to start shifting what we, what we value. In schools at the moment, we value what we give time to. So when they say they value well-being, yet it's 15 minutes of a day dedicated to well-being out of the entire time students are there, I call that bullshit. When they say they value giving young people real-world experiences, yet they're still doing humanity projects where they're building volcanoes and ancient Rome, right, that might have value around them demonstrating mastery. But where is the opportunity to take the lessons of ancient Rome or Mesopotamia and, and the great learnings from, from the philosophers of the time or the architects and the artists and to transfer them in a real-world context today so that that student can go out into their local community and make an immediate impact on that community using the learning from, from that history. You know, where is then the opportunity for them to have an immersion experience in a foreign country where, where they are encountering difference on a scale that they've never witnessed before? Where is there an opportunity for us to continue to build a bridge with our Indigenous brothers and sisters in Australia where we can have a deeper appreciation for the longest 
civilization that's ever existed and the gifts that they bring? Where are those opportunities to amplify that? Not through lip service, not through ceremony, not through tokenism, but deeply embedded into our kind of whole learning ecosystem. So our focus is not simply measuring the stuff that we currently value, which is productivity, let's face it, because that has value, right? But I don't think it should be the end point. And where do we start looking at the value of the whole individual? Where do we start looking at things like their character formation? Where do we look at their self-efficacy and their adaptability skills? Where do we look at their capacity to network and communicate uh, and problem solve and be creative beyond the domains and silos of subjects? You know, no learning, no learning in real life happens in isolation from one thing to the next. It's all it's all integrated. You know, it's not like we don't have the answers in front of us. We just got to raise our eyes and start realizing that the, the world that these young people are entering into is dramatically different to when I was their age. And I've got to park my bloody ego and realize that if I don't focus on ecosystem, we're going to fail these young people. You know, and this first first quarter of the 21st century shouldn't be part of history that fails young people in education because of our reluctance to evolve. Sorry, you got me started, uh, Matt, and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> it, was, it was brilliant. And before Toby ends our, our conversation with our last question, I just wanted to touch, you said the word salad and, and you know, some people oh, yeah. could call it that. Um, but... I think it's integral, personally, the reason I started this podcast was to create a sense of shared values to start a conversation rather than beginning with, I read this article and you read that one. Yeah, you know, yeah. I know this and you know that and we challenge each other. And you've talked about that a lot today, which I've, I'll take away with, you know, from this, which is the need to find, uh, you know, the solution through our sameness and our togetherness with diversity whatever it might be but our shared values our love for each other and the planet and, and whatever it might be to make a difference rather than find those you know i can do this better than you you can yeah. you know whatever it might be so thank you for that yeah it's been brilliant now at the risk of uh landing on a flat note because you've already said you know teaching chose me it wasn't something that i recognize you've spoken about throughout your career there wasn't any single sort of single point when you said this is what I've got to do but nonetheless the title of the podcast and our recurring question is in the context of what you do today in the context of all of the effort and as you've described the hours and hours of your life that you've put into this for want of a better word calling mm -hmm. what was your moment of clarity when did you in whatever, I don't necessarily mean becoming a teacher, but in terms of what you give through and to education. I was anticipating you're going to ask me a question about moments of clarity, considering that's the name of the show. Uh, but now um, we're going to answer this. Well, I feel I'll just quick. I'll share you a quick little story because my short answer is very simply: young people have given me clarity. In 2017, I had the opportunity to travel with 10 young men um, from my, the school that I was at, plus three staff members to Cambodia. Here we lived and worked in solidarity with um, the Maris brothers uh, and the local community of, um, uh, in support of the young people of a town called Pei Lin, very close to the Thai border. Very, very hot place as well. Um, 
and not a lot of not a lot of coverage. Each student for me was an example that hope is the virtue of a heart that doesn't succumb to darkness and despair, but is also able to see tomorrow flooded with light and optimism. But they were a group of young men capable of starting a revolution of deep faith, love and hope. I refer to them more as pilgrims as opposed to tourists because, you know, tourist has a certain superficial element to it where, of course, a pilgrim is about an encounter that's uh, that goes beyond the surface. The, the, the pilgrims in Cambodia that I encountered are but one example, just one example, of young people prepared to share their gift of generosity, love and the possibility within within themselves and the world. And for me, this moment of clarity is around that the fact that each generation of young people over my whole entire educational journey has reminded me that love is a verb and they continue to provide me with much oxygen and hope of our collective possibility as we kind of navigate these unknown futures. And um, as I said before, you know, we should never forget this notion that each young person is, you know, in our care is home to life and that we need to honour this truth and embrace the privilege and price of giving their life the breadth and abundance of living and um, that type of level of clarity is around what my purpose is what my why is and although there's self-actualization wrapped in all of that as well it's fundamentally about the service of the other and the more and more we are prepared to step into that deep place of vulnerability in the service of the other, because, you know, the moment you encounter another person, you're opening yourself to their possibility, you become vulnerable because you don't know what you're going to get, right? When we, when we step into that, there's a different level of permission that takes over because you are, you are entering into a space where you're giving yourself the, the formal consent to continue to say yes to self, to place and to other. And, uh, I am indebted to every young person I've ever encountered because uh, they definitely have given me clarity around why I do what I do and, and what I continue to be called to do. Travel, travel, the act of travel, uh, continues to give me lots of clarity about lots of things in life. Um, you know, this notion of setting out on a new adventure and an unearthing kind of new encounters, you know, continues to give me life and feeds a kind of deep desire I suppose, within me to forever remain curious. And um, there's an Italian saying, dolce fa niente. Basically, it means, you know, the sweetness of doing nothing. So the times that I travel where I'm still in a space doing nothing other than simply being uh, has provided an enormous amount of clarity. No, thank you very much. And it still doesn't alter what I was going to say, which is uh, firstly to thank you uh, for that, but also to go out on a bit of a limb. And I, think, uh, I feel that was one of the uh, more poetic-sounding uh, moments of clarity, that certainly that I've heard. So thank you very much, Adriano. That was wonderful. Thank Absolutely. you. Adriano Di Prato, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Matteo and Toby. It's been a real privilege um, and I really appreciate uh, you creating the space for us to have these type of conversations. The podcast brings such value to people and uh, it just actually takes some people who are prepared to be open to the possibility of the other as you both are. So please continue to do what you do because it gives so much hope to so many. Thank you. You're very generous. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.